Before we kick off this short synopsis of where we've been this season in preparation for, and everyone may feel free to gasp in shock at, at this statement, but in preparation for continuing with this season, a few minor changes I'd like to let folks know about. First, and worst, but I think of necessity, we're going to be shifting from a weekly show, you know, sometimes, to a show every other week, hopefully most of the time, with the exception of, you know, actual official interseason breaks. As you can no doubt surmise, the workload of all this uh, just got to be a bit much for me, and while, well, you know, we're nice and all caught up now, uh, the same situation's just going to repeat itself later if I don't start spacing these out a bit. Some shows will, as a consequence of this, actually get a bit longer, um, which let me know how you, how you feel about that, if you enjoy that. But we're just as I'm trying to tie more things together, it uh, just, of necessity, takes longer to talk about some of these things. This will also allow me to hopefully put out some more of those epiphenomena shows that, that we used to be able to do. So I, I think, ultimately, I hope this will work out to everyone's advantage. Second, some minor changes to the structure of the shows themselves. Where appropriate, I'm going to start shows off with kind of a synopsis of the conclusions that we will eventually reach by the end of the show. This will be particularly true in shows that are a bit, quote-unquote, further from any given text, meaning shows that are not so much about any one particular philosopher's work where we're kind of following the structure of that person's thinking, but where we back off a little bit, try and take more of a you know, whatever, 30,000-foot view and draw some of our own conclusions. Though my hope is that in knowing where our eventual eventual destination will lead us to, that will make the journey a little bit more clear, a little bit more easy to follow. Third, in some, but not all of our shows, I, I'm going to start asking folks some pointed questions at the end of the show. This might be areas where I feel the line of thinking that we're following has some possible weaknesses, or where, you know, we could use some additional perspectives or just points that I think are of particular importance and that I'd like to hear your feedback on. As I've said a few times, I do want this to be as interactive as possible, so hopefully this will give you a chance to send some thoughts in via email, via Twitter, or uh, however else you'd like to do so. But without further ado, let's dive into the recap so that we can dive into the rest of the series. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, and welcome back to A Freedom of Ideas after a slight recess, for which I hope you have accepted my apologies, uh, which are most sincere, but I'm certainly hoping everyone is doing well and very much looking forward to speaking with you today and getting back to our regularly scheduled programming. In preparation for getting back to business on our foundation series, I thought it might be helpful to provide a brief you know, brief by the standards of a freedom of ideas, brief recap of where we've been so far this season. From the start of this series, we've seen how reason and freedom, these two obviously extremely important ideas, how they commingle almost inextricably in the Western philosophical tradition. This includes what I've been calling our sort of freedom triptych, meaning the notion that our freedom is a combination of the rational capacity to make choices, 
the political freedom to implement the choices we make, and the responsibility to be held accountable for those choices, because after all, they are ours, and they were rationally made, so we should be very well prepared to be held accountable for them, right? You take away any one of the three of these factors, you no longer have freedom as most any classical European-style thinker would conceive of it. After that, we started to explore the systems of civil society, all those great external pieces of mind, like the legal systems, justice systems, education systems, financial systems, just the, in, to some extent the way we as a people socially interact outside of the walls of our own household, however, however we define that, right? So what we saw when we started to examine these things, still with this notion of reason very much on our minds, uh, obviously, we found also that these are fundamentally rational systems, right? That they, they're they based on human language and, you know, as, I, as we say, some notion of causality. So I speed, therefore I get pulled over. I argue there was an emergency, therefore the officer must decide if my story warrants leniency. It won't, but, you know, so be it. Now, as we've said, this is not pure reason, right? This is not reason as Mill and Locke and others attempted to practice it in their philosophy. Pleading my case to a police officer is not going to be helped by my dropping, you know, syllogisms and appeals to the categorical imperative, at least not, never in my experience. And, and I've, I've uh, you know, argued the occasional speeding ticket, but that's neither here nor there. But it is nonetheless, this, these systems, even the, even the conversation with the police officer, they, these are fundamentally rooted in this sort of basic causality, basic rationality. And the same is true, as we say, of every other public system, it really most every aspect of civil society as we define that in, in the broadest possible sense. Now, as a consequence of this, reason becomes a kind of currency in our dealings with society. If my reasons for my actions are regarded as sound and good, I will basically be more successful in my dealings in civil society, right? By contrast, if I am seen as forever irrational, right, as, as always the person who's causing problems and, and not really participating in the rational exchanges that we count on to make our day-to-day -day business go along pretty well, well, I'm going to get a reputation for that. And that's fundamentally going to make all of my dealings harder, even if I'm not always being that irrational person, the fact that I've got that reputation, that's just going to make things a little bit harder for me in civil society, right? So my perceived rationality, the extent to which other people in civil society around me assume that I am rational. So my trustworthiness, the, the assumption on the part of other people that I will typically attempt to act the way most other people typically attempt to act and, and the way most other people assume that I should act, right? These are all essential to my status as a rational, rational human being and therefore if you will, a member in good standing of the civil society around me. When I'm assumed to be rational in the way that society around me defines rationality, that in essence is, it's like my rational currency, right? It's the amount of credibility I bring to most interactions in civil society and in the public square, if you will. But the interesting thing about this particular currency, our rational currency, if you will, is that it's not absolute, and it's not something that we alone control or determine. So what do I mean by that? 
we think about actual currency, like, you know, money, uh, however many, a $20 bill, the value of that dollar or that $20 or whatever, that piece of currency, it may fluctuate to some extent, right? Depending on economic circumstances, what's going on in the larger economy. But fundamentally, you know, those variations notwithstanding, if I have $20 in my pocket, I have $20 in my pocket, and I can pretty much buy anything that costs $20 or less. No one can simply walk up to me and tell me that, in fact, even though it looks to me like a $20 bill, in fact, that's it's always just been a five. You only have $5. So whatever fluctuations currency experiences, it's not going to be differences of, of fundamentally differences of opinion between you and me to, to figure out how much money I actually have in my pocket, right? But not so with rationality. In every transaction, the two people involved in any given rational exchange decide how much rational, rational currency each other has, based as much on their own perspective as on what actually uh, was as on what they actually perceive in the behavior and speech of the other person. Thus, I might think of myself as being perfectly rational, but nonetheless find that I can't get my perspective taken seriously. Now, we talked about circumstances in which the civil society around me might decide I'm not truly a rational agent in the way everyone else is, and thus effectively remove much of my capacity to make free choices. Now, the really extreme examples of this include our, our person who wakes up with no memory in some spooky old version of a quote-unquote insane asylum. Like, really, this is, as we've discussed many times, much more of a movie trope than, than reality, although, you know, go back a little ways in our history, and I certainly would not want to be, uh, would not want to end up in one of those places because they were often extremely cruel, but that's another story entirely. In any event, so this person wakes up with no memory whatsoever, no idea who they are, no ID, and they're in this insane asylum. So this person, we can more or less expect this person will be assumed to lack reason and rationality almost entirely. Or, as I say, at least so goes the old movie trope. They will lack all rational currency. They, they won't even be able to say who they are and have that be trusted. They certainly can't speak about their motivations. They can't speak about their plans and their goals. They are absolutely unrooted from this system of rationality as we understand it. Therefore, there will be nothing that person can say to have their perspective regarded as rational because the powers that be have simply decided it is not. Now, as we continued, and please forgive me, I, I'm going to take the next few of these points out of order from how we rolled them out on the show, but you know, it's same same basic ideas, just reordered a little bit. As we can we continued by recognizing that folks in this classical European philosophical tradition, as we see it embodied in Mill and Locke and others who we will eventually be getting to, these folks are in fact using a very particular kind of reason in their thinking. So when we talk about philosophers using reason, attempting to use pure reason, we're talking about that rigorous, logical, as close to perfect as possible style of rationality. We've been calling this European rationality, European reasoning, although of course it's important to remember that when we talk about this very particular uh, attempt at pure objective reasoning, that's something that's usually happening amongst philosophers, scientists, other folks like that. So not everyone, of course, in Europe is constantly running around trying to be completely objective. However, as we'll discuss, 
the sort of ideals of this style of reasoning did sort of seep out, permeate out into the rest of the worldview. But we'll get to that in a second. So European reasoning, this particular way the faculty of reasoning was used in Europe and in European philosophical thinking, we defined this as reasoning with a strong emphasis on objectivity. The idea being that real truth is separated from my individual personal perspective, and it's located much more within the universal. And of course, to access the universal, I have to get out of my particular, right? I have to be objective and thus think as universally as I possibly can. European reasoning imagines God as he who is sort of fundamentally rational, possessive of this, this perfect truth. And the best way to get closer to that truth, that one perfect, purely objective, purely rational truth that God possesses, the best way to get closer to that truth is to divest yourself as much as possible of the personal, particular muckiness of your own individual perspective, your own individual selfhood. And again, to seek the universal and the objective, to seek the logical over the emotional, to seek the scientific over the intuitive, to seek the orderly over the chaotically complex, right? Now, to get a better sense of the arc of this particular kind of rationality, not, not, not its origins exactly, we can go all the way back to the beginning, because that really, that you have to go back to ancient Greece and probably even before that to really examine the, the headwaters, if you will, of this particular rational stream. But to see a bit more of the modern trend line of European reasoning, we went back to Locke, who was writing about 200 years before Mill was. Now in Locke, John Locke, we picked up a number of clues to help us understand this particular kind of rationality as it expresses itself in Mill, and in a far less pure and more practical form, as it is, expresses itself in the way that, as we said before, it's kind of seeped out into this overall European worldview in the uh, 19th century in Europe generally. In Locke, just like in Mill, we saw a style of rationality that was singular. European rationalists viewed their method of rationality as being the one true path. They believed there was really only one correct way to use this faculty of human rationality, and that they were the most advanced users of this one particular correct way of using reason. And of course, we can see this sort of tied into many of the presumptions about Christianity in Europe in this period. Again, we think of God that this is not a, a, a universe of, of multiple gods and multiple influences, kind of the way we think of the Greeks or the Romans. We, we have one God, and that God is possessed of pure truth, pure rationality, pure vision of what actually is in the most universal sense. So if God has pure truth, it's not like there's a lot of, there are other alternatives, right? We, we can't make our way to a different truth that's just as good as God's. No, there's, there's only one. And if there's only one destination, it sort of follows, particularly when you start thinking the way these guys do is of reason as this kind of potentially perfect tool. If you think of it that way, then in addition to there only being one destination, there's kind of only one path as well, right? Now, again, we're humans, we're faulted, we're never going to get all the way up to that particular mountaintop. However, the simple fact that there is only one mountaintop, 
and only one truly viable path up the mountain, well, of course that matters. It means that this style of rationality has a unique capacity to get toward truth in a way that no other style of rationality in existence possibly could. So in essence, these folks, Locke, Mill, and, and the rest of their ilk, they, because of the way they thought about reason and what reason was, they thought they were using their minds to understand the world and themselves in ways that no other people were able to do. As a people, Europeans believed they were growing more rational, more scientific, more economically sound, all with this kind of tentpole of perfect rationality right there at the center, sort of driving an entire society and an entire people toward clearer truth, better rationality, all the rest of it. Reason was the one true path toward enlightened understanding, the one measurement, the one scale by which we can tell how close to or how far away from real understanding uh, an individual person is or how close or far, far away from real understanding an entire society actually is. Now, needless to say, both Locke and Mill and most of the other thinkers of their time and, and in between, they all regarded themselves as being pretty much as far down that path as, as anyone in humanity was, meaning they believed that they were as rational as anyone had ever been, that they were using the best form of this tool of reasoning, and they were using it as well as anyone ever had in the past, or actually better, right? But with this entire system of presumptions about rationality, with that comes along what we've started calling our rational chauvinism. Meaning, if Europeans regarded themselves as thinking and speaking and acting and really all around living in the most rational possible way, if they were at the height of human rationality, then anyone who acted or spoke or thought or lived differently than them must by definition be less rational, right? Only one path. So if the path is a mile long and I'm three quarters of the, of the way down that path and you're only halfway down the path by, I mean, it's just incontrovertible. I'm closer to the goal than you are, right? That's just the way it works. So this is where we enter in with an idea like Mill hit us with, this idea of people in their knownage, meaning people who are immature, people who are childlike, people who have not yet progressed as far along this path as we vaunted Europeans have. And of course, this, to some extent, we just keep tying all the pieces together. This also echoes back to what we talked about right at the first part of this show today. The idea that the extent to which we are presumed by others, particularly by other people in power, but the extent to which we are presumed to be rational or not, that has a profound impact on our own agency in civil society, right? This is this rational currency that other people in power can sort of decide, I don't have as much of it as I think I do. So here we see, right in Mill, codified in, in his work on liberty, for heaven's sakes, we see it codified in Mill, a formula by which a presumed lack of rationality renders the subject as, in essence, a child not fully capable of reason, and if you're not fully capable of reason, you are therefore not truly fully deserved of freedom. You, you can't handle freedom in the way that a more rational person can, because you go back to our trip triptych, remember, that's 
the capacity for rationality, the, the freedom to implement the choices we make based on that rationality, and then finally, our ability to be held accountable. Well, Mill said, and he says this more or less directly, in just the same way that we can't expect a three-year-old child to be fully mature and fully rational and fully accountable for all their actions, thus we act with we act like a despot to a three-year-old, right? We, we control their actions in ways that we would never think to do of someone who's in their 30s. But for Mill, this entire notion of immaturity can just as easily be transposed into the way we think about entire peoples and their progressions versus just thinking about people who are actually young and immature. But you know, getting back to this, we, re we remember the quote in Mill, right? After, after his long paragraph detailing a view of freedom in which there can be no justifiable reasons to interfere with another person's actions unless those actions are setting out to harm someone else. Except, except, as we said, when it comes to children. Children need to be taught how to be rational, right? So that they can succeed in being rationally free. And here is what sent us reeling into the brutality that is imperialism. Mill also posits that there are people as a whole who are more childlike, people as a whole who are less advanced, less mature, less capable of European rationality. In Mill's terminology, again, they are quote-unquote in their nonage. And just like you essentially have, have to rule over a child like a despot, so too is it justifiable. In fact, so too is it often necessary to rule over childlike people with despotism. Now, when talking about this despotism over people who are not yet sufficiently rational or mature to rule over themselves, Mill gives us first the example of Charlemagne. Now, Charlemagne, if we go back to, to his history and to his time, he rules with a kind of often very brutal authoritarianism that we can certainly barely imagine today uh, wanting to live in a society like that, but which we also typically say, geez, you know, that's, that was probably just necessary given his time and place in history when political power in Europe, it was like everything was in, in, in such chaos and disorganization and had been at that point in time for numerous centuries uh, following the fall of the Roman Empire. So when the alternative is likely chaos and war, and we accept a ruler like Charlemagne, we accept that he simply has to be a despot so that he can build up the institutions of civil society to such an extent that will, it will allow for greater political freedom and autonomy for later people. Now, we can agree or not agree with that characterization of Charlemagne, but what we certainly must accept is that this is Mill's view, way of viewing it. He would look at Charlemagne and say, hey, yeah, of course I don't want to live under Charlemagne now in 1850, but to live the way we do in 1850, it required a despot back in the 700s to make sure that all those, those pieces of civil society would be put in place, that they would be allowed to grow and to flourish to the point that we have become this mature, rational society that we are now. So that... Whatever we think of Charlemagne, certainly we must accept that that was Mill's view of Charlemagne. But we also, and Mill didn't do this, Mill mainly used uh, Charlemagne as his great example of, 
of why you why certain people require despotism to counterbalance their immaturity. But given our knowledge of history and our looking back and our knowing what uh, Mill's day job was over there at the British East India Company, we had to draw a second analogy from this notion of, of necessary despotism to really one particular fairly significant aspect of the way imperialism was implemented over the centuries. This notion that English and European imperialism was, in a sense, teaching subject people how to be more rational, how to be better prepared to be self-governing, how to be more mature as a people. This was a stated goal for many people of this entire institution of imperialism. Now, of course, as we've said, the, the root motivation for imperialism was, was really just greed and power. But as imperialism becomes more and more central to the basic nature of English and European life, it was just sort of inevitable that different ways of view, viewing it, different ways of justifying it would begin to crop up. So while he does not explicitly say so, it is impossible to me to not just assume that Mill saw imperialism as a form of necessary despotism that would ultimately help subject peoples become more mature, become more rational. If we can sort of ignore the complete and rather evil absurdity of the notion that you essentially have to enslave people as a means of making them free, if we can just look past that shocking, glaring, and obviously uh, awful mistake that was being made here by Mill and many, many, many other people. It's important to recognize that it was an explicit goal of imperialism, not just a side effect. This wasn't just like a little side thing that some people saw. It was an explicit goal of imperialism to change the minds of the subject peoples who experienced it, to make the world itself more European, to spread European rationality, to spread the European worldview that contained that, that kind of rationality as a sort of centerpiece for the way it operated. So to return to the philosophical line of thinking, the ability to reason equates to the ability to be free and people in their knowledge, people who are immature, as they would be described by these folks by Mill and, and others in, these, in the age of imperialism, those people lack the maturity to be rational. As such, we have in the midst of our vision of freedom a justification for despotism, as we say. When we encounter a people in their nonage, whether it's Charlemagne encountering the Saxons or for Mill, whether it's uh, England encountering foreign peoples who are the subjects of imperialism, when we encounter a people who are immature, who do not reason the way we reason, despotism is a valid, perhaps they would say even a necessary response so long as that despotism is designed to help, quote-unquote, develop this immature race of people and prepare them for freedom by cultivating this notion of rationality. Because it's their ostensible immaturity, quote-unquote immaturity, that makes these people less rational and therefore less capable of being free, that, that means, therefore, they are in need of guidance. They're in need of instruction. They're in need of our... And this is the way, I'm obviously not my thinking, but this is the, the, the thinking of this period. These people required despotism to be inflicted on them to mold them into people who would later be capable of being free, at least, again, as far as Mill and many, many other thinkers 
put their minds to justifying imperialism, at least as far as they were concerned. Now that's one of those things. That's one of those ideas that it's bad enough to just hear it said in the abstract, in a, in a drawing room, that, in our little uh, review of philosophical ideas. It's offensive and it misses an obvious mistake that we'll discuss in a moment. But as long as it's all, you know, just some dude in an armchair in London yammering on to other dudes in other armchairs, it's probably not going to be much of a problem, right? As long as it doesn't get out of that setting and somehow infect, you know, the better part of the face of the globe, it should be pretty safe, kind of contained in that little drawing room somewhere in London. Except, as we've said, and as we've attempted to prove in, its, in the relationship between this philosophy and the realities of imperialism, European philosophy of this period is not purely abstract. It does impact the world, because in a roundabout, messy, unclear way, the chauvinism that results from this way of reasoning, meaning the sense that we are the people who we can consider to be the most rational on this one single scale of, of European rationality, since that way of viewing reason tells us that we are as far up the mountain as any other people could possibly be, that chauvinism, not all of the rationality that necessarily goes with it, but the chauvinism itself became part of a worldview that was generally European and which most, if not all Europeans felt, felt privy to. They felt they were part of it. So this is kind of a, a vague analogy, but I hope it makes sense. So Europeans in this era saying that they are kind of part of a practice of rationality that's akin to Mill and Locke and other thinkers like that, that's, that's akin to me, me saying that I belong to the people who first walked on the moon. Now, if you mean Americans, and I'm also an American, then yeah, okay, sure, right. I, I'm, I'm one of those people insofar as those folks were Americans and I'm an American. But, you know, I personally, as I believe I've mentioned, I'm afraid of flying. I don't like getting on the Delta connection to Salt Lake City, never mind something that's going to go out of the stratosphere. So how then, when we get into the details, am I really of the people of astronauts or is that kind of more of a contingent relationship? But still, you know, when we're making these broad statements about ourselves and our identity in the, in the, on the global scale, we do tend to be a little bit more uh, vague, right? And a little more tolerant of broad analogies, analogies like, yeah, sure. I am one of the, I am, I belong to the people that first walked on the moon. And just like saying a lot of folks in, in Europe who are running around doing things like imperialism, that sure. Yeah. They were of the kind of arch rational people who were doing things like writing on Liberty or, or being Locke or being Newton or being scientists or being philosophers or, or whatever else. So it's by no means a strict or rigorous connection. But we all understand how those kind of connections, particularly when it's matters of chauvinism, things that we can be proud of, right? We all understand how those connections of our broader identity get made. And it's when that broader worldview starts to get infected with this notion that there is one correct way to reason, one true path up the mountain to the one true, you know, group of truths about the world that there can't be any, you know, any alternative version of. It's when that impulse, that chauvinism begins to seep into an overall worldview, that's when we start seeing 
the entire, I shouldn't say the entire, that's being far too general, but that's when we start seeing Europeans generally feeling like it is part of their responsibility to go out to find people who do not act like them, do not speak like them, do not think like them, do not worship like them, do not buy and sell things and own things like they do, that it's their responsibility to go help those people become more rational, meaning, of course, to start acting a lot more like they do. So Europeans suddenly feel empowered with this notion that, yes, it is not only their privilege, it's their responsibility to help the rest of the world act and think and be more like they act and think and are. But of course, all of this, this, this impulse to go out and remake the world to have it all be more European, all of this is premised on a very basic mistake that is contained within the line of reasoning we've been talking about so far. And I will say this, much of this line of reasoning, this line of reasoning that leads people to assume they must force other people to act and think the way that they act and think, I still think that much of the line of reasoning is correct. But there is one mistake, and that mistake is profound and critical and hugely problematic. So let's just go through this line of reasoning. What I think is right about it particularly, yes, first of all, yes, it is possible to say, in my opinion, that reason, rationality, is a necessary element of civilizational and, and individual maturity, that being a, a fully realized human being means possessing some, some aspect of rationality, but means possessing that faculty. Yes, it is possible to say that reason is necessary to being genuinely free as an individual or as a people. And yes, in my opinion, it is possible to say that failing to possess reason is failing to be a fully actualized human being. It's possible to say all of that. And I think it's actually a, def a defensible point of view. I personally, I agree with all of it. However, all of it sort of papers over a mistake that can turn the entire system from being one that's relatively hopeful to being one that's actually barbaric and destructive as imperialism was. And the mistake comes when we define reason too narrowly. That's really the fundamental problem I have with all this. When we say, in essence, that only the way I conduct reason counts as reason in the first place, making it so that my judgment about the rationality of other people rests on my perception of how they act, how they speak, how they worship, how they buy, how they own, how they trade, and, and on and on and on, all the rest of it, which is exactly how we do tend to make these sorts of judgment. But the mistake happens when I see an indigenous person who does not dress or worship like I do, who does not build houses and till fields like I do, and I therefore assume, when I see those differences, I therefore assume that that person must be primitive, childlike, not rational, therefore not worthy of freedom, versus imagining that perhaps there are many different ways to be rational, many different ways to comport oneself successfully in the world, many different ways to structure this faculty of reason, some of which are very different from my personal understanding, and that that those alternate forms of reason are just as good at ensuring that we are mature and rational and free and able to conduct our affairs as, as, that, uh, as that one particular European kind has. 
This, again, this all brings us back to this idea of rationality as a currency to be used in our interactions with others. But, but that one that is, that, that we alone don't really control the value of. As we've said a few times, if people in power in my society decide that I am not rational, my freedom will quickly disappear. Now that is true of people in power within my society. That's true uh, uh, of people from outside of my society who might come and try and exert power over it, over my society and over me. And of course, that's what imperialism is. Folks from without coming and sort of overpowering a society and beginning to replace the structures of how civil society and reason and everything else like that are meant to work. And that, of course, brings us to imperialism, the centuries-long, worldwide, unimaginably brutal, violent, and destructive enactment of a philosophical mistake. The belief that the cause of freedom necessitates the enslavement or destruction of the majority of the peoples of the world for the sake of changing the way they think to be more like the way I think. A process which resulted in countless millions of deaths, the enslavement of entire generations, and a concerted attempt to eliminate every worldview on earth aside from that cultivated amongst Europeans. This, in essence, is the most destructive and dangerous aspect of this quote-unquote European rationally chauvinist worldview that I keep talking about. That's that worst aspect of that worldview fully operationalized on a global scale. And what it did was it caused this, this, this overall European worldview to kind of spread like a noxious weed that has now achieved unnatural domination in the global intellectual ecosystem, if you will, if you'll excuse. I think I've used that analogy before. It's certainly one I'm becoming fond of. Essentially, we see that this one way of viewing the world was allowed to spread across the world, just like when we think of on a nature show, a, a species of any kind that spreads too quickly, such that the, the environment around it can't adapt, and such that it's doing huge damage to all the other species that were getting along just fine in that ecosystem before it came along, well, that same thing here is happening fundamentally with the European rational worldview due to this notion of chauvinism that this worldview really was. Uh, not only was it better than every other worldview, it was necessary to possess this worldview, to really understand it, to even consider being free in the first place. But just like if we push that analogy, and it's a vague analogy, and you know, I can only go so far with it, but if we push that analogy of the one noxious species who's, that's overextended itself, well, first it's going to do harm to everything else, but then once it's done its harm everywhere around the world, suddenly because there is no longer a functioning ecosystem around it, that noxious species is going to start to suffer as well. But somewhere in the midst of that, that last chain of, of thinking, I, I shifted from what we've actually done so far, thus the review that we're trying to do, to what's about to come up in this series. So let me switch gears here and talk about the next series of, of several episodes. Given the primacy of the notion of reasoning in all of this, we're going to start the next series by diving into this particular European notion of reason, reasoning trying to understand what defines it, what drives it, what it carries with it, both explicitly and tacitly. 
From there, we're going to flash forward. We're going to move out of the classical period of thought and look at a present-day thinker who will help us understand why this particular view of rationality that we're talking about here with, with Mill and Locke and all these other Europeans, how that view of rationality is perhaps not at all realistic. And I should note that few thinkers, if any, amidst current philosophers of mind and psychologists and neuroscientists and really anyone else you want to name, few, if any of them, will subscribe to this notion of rationality that was maintained by these classical thinkers. But I still think we do need to get into the weeds and understand exactly how this classical view was mistaken and what that means for us since, as we've said many times, and this is our foundation series, all these folks we're talking about, they are right there at the foundation of the way we view the world and the way we consider these ideas. So if they made that profound a mistake about the nature of reason and about what was justified, what it was justified for them to do with that notion of reasoning, well, geez, it seems like it, we could probably benefit from taking some time to unpack exactly what went wrong there and exactly what effect it might still be having on us. After that, we'll dive further into the details of how exactly this, to use a term uh, that many other folks have used, certainly long before I was talking about any of this stuff, this colonization of the mind, how exactly did it occur? What, were, what was the mechanism in these imperialized societies? How did it occur that not only were the societies changed, but the minds of the people living in those societies were changed as well. How is it that this process of imperialism has really had such a profound effect on, in my opinion, on the way the entire world thinks? After that, well, I'm a, I'm a bit embarrassed, I, I will say, I'm a bit embarrassed to admit that after this series of episodes, we will finally be prepared to get back to what I had originally planned to be episode three of this season. So, you know, I'm just off by 10, maybe 15 hours of, of, of me talking on. No, no big deal. Minor bump in the road in, in our planning here. No big deal. Just to briefly forecast this, we'll come back to Mill, who talks a lot about how reason can help us progress as a society. And yeah, I, do, I know we're just going to get done sort of exploding this entire notion of reason, but still he does have a lot of very interesting things to say. What we're going to do is go back in light of everything else we've talked about and see what happens when we actually apply those European rational methodologies to problem solving amidst our current social and political realities, which, you know, don't exactly feel like they're, they're ripped right out of uh, Mill's day-to-day -day experience, but that's foreshadowing. We'll, we'll get to that in a, in a little bit. And from there, we're going to continue on to a number of other figures like Hobbes, like Rousseau, and I really hope eventually a, a guy like Hegel, who I think just adds a, an entirely different angle uh, to, this, to this entire way of thinking. But for right now, that's, that's pretty far down the line, so uh, let's not stress me out by having me think about that. Let's just stick to the task in front of us. So thank you so much, as always, as ever, for tuning in today. I really appreciate it. I hope this little recap was helpful to reorient us as we will now be returning to our normally scheduled program release of, of Thursday mornings. So with that in mind, I'll be speaking with you all again in just a couple of days, and I'm looking forward to it.